Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Michelle Bowens. Michelle is the founder and vision coordinator of the P2P Foundation and works in collaboration with a global group of researchers in the exploration of peer production, governance, and property. Cool title, Michelle. What is a vision coordinator? Well, the way we were organized is that we had five streams of activity. So one was visioning, then we had communication, operational, I forgot the two others one. But anyway, so each, the idea is that each of these streams is kind of, uh, you know, relatively autonomous. Um, and so we had a little extra budget last year, so we divided equally over the five groups. And then they kind of decided themselves how to spend it. And so basically what I do is, on the one hand, I'm kind of a librarian, so I spend quite a substantial amount of time what I call curating, which means, you know, what is happening. Uh, um, and so I try to, then the second step for me is to make sense of it, right? So I kind of, I'm into theory in that sense. So how can I make sense in an integrated way? What's the kind of largest narrative I can make of what I see that gives a certain coherence to what I'm seeing? And, you know, it's a bit related to that uh, idea of Ken Wilber when he talks about vision logic, right? So it's just something that I do naturally, organically. I'm a big picture person. So I like, you know, macro history. I like to put things together. And I've also been librarian for, you know, almost all my life. So putting these two together, these two aspects together is a bit second nature for me. That sounds like a great job. <laughs> certainly, <laughs> certainly beats being a CEO, right? I've been that a few times. That's a pain in the ass, right? <laughs> so let's start with P2P, which for our audience stands for peer-to-peer. You can find a lot more here at the p2pfoundation.net. And as usual, we'll have links to everything we talk about, every organization, every book, and most articles on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. So feel free to go there and get the link to these things. So let's start with at the simplest level, a simplest level description. We'll dig into considerable detail, but what is peer-to-peer? What does that mean? All right. So I'll first give you a short explanation, but I, I do want to give some historical background why this is important. So peer-to-peer was used you know, about 15 years ago, I think, when Napster came out. And so the idea was that we could have computer systems where every computer was autonomous and could freely communicate with other computers without passing through a server. It's kind of like the founding principle of the internet, if you like. And it it has changed. It's, it's become more hierarchical as these, these big companies took it over. But originally the idea, you know, the people who invented the internet um, was to make it a peer-to-peer system. Now, if you take that idea and apply it to people, then you have really the same dynamic. So what if we had a system where every person could freely communicate, self-organize, and you know make projects with any other person freely 
without any intermediaries or gatekeepers. And so that's the definition, right? So any system where any individual can connect, organize, and even produce value together on this basis of free contribution would be a peer-to-peer -peer system. But I want to give you some historical uh, idea because for me, it's a kind of anthropological revolution, and I'll, I'll, I want to explain why that is. So when we started the human adventure you know, in the Neolithic times, most people lived in small groups. And there is this idea from an anthropologist called Dunbar that, like primates, people can remember and trust about 150 people. So imagine you live in a tribe, in a village, you know, in a nomadic uh, group, and you know everybody's skin is skin with you, is family, uncles, and you know whatever. And so whenever there is an issue, you just you know you go talk to them basically. So it's easy to solve problems in a convivial way. But as soon as we kind of got scale in human society, you know, and had larger groups, that, that didn't work anymore. So we kind of also had to invent hierarchy you know, in terms of streamlining communication and transaction costs in, in society. And what that then creates is a conundrum because people, what they love most is to live in family, be with friends and have this convivial lifestyle. But in order to exist and compete with other, you know, predatory and competing entities, then the hierarchy will impose very strict limits of what can be done. So in this kind of context and with you know 5,000 years of class-based societies behind us, the fact that we invented technology that allows people to virtually connect with each other and actually coordinate on a global scale, you know, like Linux or Wikipedia, right? So thousands of people are collaborating and yet the average team level of a Linux uh, you know, group is four people. So what that tells me is that you can have another form of conviviality which can then coexist with our territorial organization. And so that's kind of the promise of peer-to-peer -peer is that, you know, we can organize ourselves around common projects. And because you and I will be contributing out of a free accord, that means a lot of things in terms of organization because why should I listen to you tell me what I should do if we both freely contributing to this project. So we will we'll have to invent other ways of working together. And so that's where the other words come from. So you have peer production, the capacity to freely produce together. You have peer governance, the capacity to govern this collaboration. And peer property, the capacity to create you know, mutual pools of knowledge and, and, and resources which can help us work together. So that's kind of in a nutshell why I like peer-to-peer. -peer. Very good. We recently had on the show Rich Bartlett from Inspiral, and he talked a lot about the self-organizing aspects of it. And for people that are interested in that, I'd recommend they go check out that episode as well. Closely related, now that you mention it. One of the things I think is probably useful for our audience and probably for both of us to get on the same page is that when people think of peer-to-peer -peer, sort of naively in the current world, they mostly think about non-rivalrous goods, things like open source software or a music file back in the Napster days that could be copied for a tiny fraction of a cent. But economics can, in one cut on the world of goods, is into rivalrous and non-rivalrous. 
My favorite example for rivalrous is a ham sandwich. Either you eat it or I eat it. We can't both eat it, right? We could cut it down the middle, but it's essentially a non-rivalrous good. Once it's been eaten, whoever ate it has done the job. On the other hand, a non-rivalrous good is a good that can be reproduced very inexpensively, like a music file or most medicines actually are very inexpensive to make so that if it weren't entangled with intellectual property constraints, there would be no reason that everyone who wanted it could have it. And there's a third class, so-called public goods. You know, For instance, law and order is a public good. We all take part in it for both good and evil, as it's turning out, I suspect. But in terms of exchange and more traditional economics, rivalrous and non-rivalrous are important divisions. Can you speak a little bit to the applicability of the peer-to-peer idea in the rivalrous domain in particular, where I think people are less used to hearing about it? Yes, so I actually want to tell you first that peer-to-peer can be used in a market exchange. And some people would argue that the market is a kind of a peer-to-peer system because, you know, peers can exchange. And now, of course, we have these platforms that are privately owned, but where people can exchange, um, like supply and demand can meet each other on a platform. The kind of peer-to-peer I use is more in the sense of your question. So it's using these peer-to-peer dynamics to create commons. And actually, I'm going to kind of disagree with you because the the first commons, and a commons is defined in, in three ways. So it's a shared resource that is produced or maintained by a community or a group of stakeholders. And that is self-regulated. So this, so it's a resource, it's a group of people, and it's a form of governance. And that's how Eleanor Ostrom, who kind of was the first to really study the commons, defined it broadly. And if you look at the history of the commons, the first commons were actually, you know, physical resources. So if you look at forests and river basins and fishing communities, you know, before we had a capitalist system, most of these resources were commons. Uh, so, for example, if you travel in uh, Japan or Austria and Switzerland, and you ask yourself, so why is everything so green? You know, in the in the mountain flanks of these countries, it's because they are commons. In other words, the villages themselves are the ones that manage the use of that resource, and they do so with a long-term perspective. So, because they all depend on it, they will manage it collectively in a way that you know seven generations uh, can can still use it. So that's the first phase of the commons. And I want to give you an, an historical example. You know, the most important Catholic ritual in medieval Europe next to Christmas and Easter was called the Rogantide procession. And this was when the, all the people of the parish would collectively, you know, uh, circumvent, uh, it's called perambulation, I think in English, uh, say they would go around the parish and confirm their comments. And they would say, this is from all of us. So this is important, but it means that in the Middle Ages, if you were a farmer in a parish, your identity was actually constituted by your collaboration in these commons. So yes, of course, on the one hand, you had a feudal system. So you had a bit of land of your own. You had the land of the Lord, which you you know, you know worked and gave a part of it to the Lord in, in exchange for protection. But you also had these common resources that you could use. So that's the first phase. And capitalism, whatever you think of it as a system, is really based on the destruction of the commons. So this is called the enclosures, right? It's when uh, people started fencing in 
Uh, and what you have to remember that originally property was not absolute individual property, but uh, in this context, it was something that belonged to your family. And as the as a patriarch, you know, of your family lineage, you couldn't do what you want with the property. You had to protect it for all the descendants that would come after you. But once you have property that you can sell whenever you want, that's when the enclosure started. Because what people then found was that it was that they could m make more profit with sheep than with people. And the enclosures is this whole process of fencing the common property and making it into private property. So the second phase of the commons was social commons. So all these farmers expelled from their uh, farm, they become workers in the you know early manufacturing cities like in England in the 19th century. They have no protection whatsoever. They die when they're 30 on average. And so they create the mutualization of their life risk. And this is what gave us the welfare system, you know, like the New Deal type of organizations that you have in the U.S. You know, they weren't invented by Roosevelt. He looked at what the people were already doing and then decided to generalize. Uh, and Beverage in the U.K., they did the same. So this is the second phase when the social commons became dominant because the physical resources had been privatized. And the welfare state is the nationalization, if you like, of these uh, social commons. Are you still with me? Then I I am because then I go to the third phase, which is you know what we know in our generations, which is the digital commons. And so the internet kind of showed people who are no longer familiar with what commons were that wow we can work together, we can create a Wikipedia, free software, open design. Um, so culturally, that was very important to for people to realize that it's actually easy to work together. But we didn't stop there, Jim, because the fourth phase, which I studied in Ghent in 2017 in, in the north of Belgium, is the urban commons. And you know they have increased tenfold from uh, roughly 2006 to 2016. You can take any city in, in the West, but even in Latin America, and you'll see studies that show an enormous exponential rise of urban commons. So th that means that people, for example, if you want organic food, are going to create CSAs, right? Consumer-supported agriculture, community land trusts, uh, energy co-ops. So we're actually going back to material commons because in many cases there is either market failure or state failure, and people who are motivated will say, okay, why don't we do it together, pool our resources to make sure that we all can eat organic food. And I would say, and this I'm concluding, the, the phase that we are now is what I call cosmolocal production, is that think about permaculture, right? There's thousands and thousands of plots nowadays. So they're very local, but all the people who do permaculture learn from each other in their network, where they pool their knowledge together. Uh, and then you have, for example, in Europe, 120 what we call multi-factories, where craftspeople you know, look for like if, uh, an old factory they can use. They mutualize the space. So each craftsperson has his own space, but they they manage it together. They use open source principles and all of them working together work for the invisible factory. That's how they call it. And this is everything they do together and pool together. So there you can see that a commons is very much also potentially related to the market. And I would argue that the medieval markets in the, you know, in the free European cities of the Middle Ages 
were markets that were working with the guilds, which were commons. So they created these ethical economies that would protect the worker guilds, uh, you know, against and 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 divide the power with the church and the and the and the feudal lords and the kings. And they succeeded this for you know a few centuries. Yep, very good. In fact, yeah, you know, when I was saying that what we think of when we think of peer to peer these days tends to be electronic and internet. You're absolutely right. The real history of it goes all the way back to the dawn of time when all of our production was essentially peer-to-peer. Yeah, the difference is only that now because we have virtual tools, we can create virtual territories on top of the physical. That's that's the, the big revolution. So it existed, but it was bounded you know, in time and space to you know smaller communities. And what we've achieve with the internet is the potential to have global projects that are kind of coordinated to these commons. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little later. I'm just going to add a little personal note, which I do from time to time. I happen to live in a county in the United States, which does not have the fence-in law for property. That's one of the few in the United States that's still a fence-out law, essentially. So in principle, the commons still exists, and there are lots of mountains, fair amount of government-owned land, that in principle, you can put your hogs out in the fall and run on the common land, and it's legal, sort of. That's interesting. Yep. And the law literally is still that it's your duty to fence animals out if that's what you want to do. Not everybody understands that, which produced some hurt feelings, particularly from newcomers who don't understand this older tradition. But within U.S. law, it is legal, at least in the state of Virginia, for a county to choose to be a fence out county rather than fence in. I think there's three or something out of 125. I'm fascinated. I want to learn more about this. I, I didn't know this. This is so interesting because I, just this week I saw several things passing by about common land pastures in Europe. And I was actually you know, surprised that so much of it is still existing. So, for example, in Galicia, which is one of the Spanish provinces, one third of the land is still common land. And in France, and I didn't expect this at all, there's 100,000 people in an association of uh, you know, kind of communal commons. So these are like uh, in the Alps and the Pyrenees regions, uh, common river management, common forest management. So they do still exist, even though they kind of disappeared from, from consciousness of, you know, most city dwellers and everything. Yeah, that's good. We should definitely catalog those for people to learn about. Okay, let's move on here a little bit. One thing I want to reference is that a fair amount of what follows, not all of it, I dug out of a book Michelle wrote with Vasilis Kostakis and Alex Pazitis called Peer-to-Peer, The Commons Manifesto. If you want to dig in a little bit deeper than we're going in the show, grab that book. It's available. I got my copy on Amazon. I think it's also available for free from the P2P Foundation website. And at the University of Westminster, they uh, have uh, like a freely downloadable copy in Creative Commons. Very good. All right. Talking about Creative Commons, just a, I think a good, very nice little swing to my next topic. One of the things you have on your website is that part of what you're working on is universal access guaranteed through licenses such as Creative Commons, GPL, peer production license, etc. Do you have thoughts about that? What licenses are good for peer-to-peer and, and, and creating a commons? And you know which ones tend to be used to exploit the process for personal or corporate wealth. Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I'm a bit of a heretic uh, in that uh, sense because so basically today you have the choice between kind of two extremes, which is copyright and copyleft. And copyright is, of course, it's mine. And if you want to use it, you need my permission, you need to pay me. And then copyleft, the exact opposite, is everybody can use it. But my view is that if you want to create, you know, better ethical and generative markets, so non-predatory non markets, is that you need some defense mechanism. And that's why in the book I propose something called copy fair, which kind of sits in between. So what is copy fair is the idea that around these productive communities, which, which are open collaborative systems, right, where everybody can collaborate to Linux and, and now the new blockchain systems have the same principle. But if you want to create an economy which is not controlled by you know, big multinational corporations, you have to protect the, the ethical firms. And so copy fair is the principle that the knowledge can be shared as much as you like, but if you want to make money, then you need to show some form of reciprocity with the community who has produced that knowledge. And so an, an example of a group that does that is the Fair Shares Association, which is a, actually a property format in the UK. And so what they do is everybody can use the work they produce with a Creative Commons non-commercial license, which is uh, like a restriction. But if you pay the membership fee, and so you reciprocate in the production of that knowledge, then you have the Creative Commons license, which also allows commercial use, right? I, I think that this is interesting and what I'm, what I'm seeking is some kind of convergence between, you know, the co-ops model, the solidarity economic models, the B corporations, the social entrepreneurs, the not-for-profit sector. And if they would use these licenses, they could then, you know, create this kind of ethical, generative, entrepreneurial coalitions, which I call entrepreneurial, because entrepreneurial actually means etymologically taking in between. And I would like to see, you know, the kind of markets that we had in medieval cities, which were generative markets with uh, issues like just pricing, where, you know, there is this consciousness also in the market players that they're there to serve society. Yep, that sounds very good. And, you know, I've been engaged with these licensing standards for many years. And I agree with you that, you know, the current models, GPL is just strange and weird, not really practical for a lot of real world projects. And yet on the other side, copyright is not what we're really looking for for trying to build a world around sharing. I'm glad to learn about you know, new hybrid forms that have some more critical thinking about real-world applications. And I think I'll have to check out fair shares. That's real interesting. I tend to normally recommend people look at the MIT licenses. They give you a lot of room to pretty much dial in what you want and are less prescriptive than things like GPL. It might be that, I don't know, find out maybe fair shares is built on top of the MIT licensing scheme, but it's really important. And when people are going to do a project, particularly in the non-rivalrous world, I always tell them, think long and hard before you choose your license, because the license actually can empower or can constrain what you're trying to do. Yeah, so, you know, there's a paradox, right? I mean, if you define the word communism like Marx did, which means everybody contributes what he wants and uses what he uh, needs, that, that was the official definition in the 19th century, you know, before the totalitarian Soviet systems changed the, the meaning. If you use that definition, then paradoxically, you know, the GPL is that kind of license. 
But then the paradox is that it also allows big companies to use that knowledge. And so what you get then is these open source economies that are totally dominated by big companies. Now, it, it works for free software, but what if you start making designs for machines, right? Then you're really worried that some big company will just take that design and mass produce that machine, and they will outcompete you in a, in a matter of months, and you'll be dead. You see what I mean? Yep, absolutely. So in, in those cases, like for co-ops and things, I, I think the idea of copy fair would, would really serve their needs because then they could share the knowledge but be secure that it couldn't be used by bad actors that just take the knowledge and then, you know, destroy them in the process. So that's the kind of basic idea. It's, it's you know, it's a principle is that, yes, knowledge can be shared, but if you make money, you should, you know, sh share a bit of it with all the people that have co-created that knowledge. That's also the idea, by the way, um, I don't know if you see, see that in my book, but what we call contributive accounting. So I did a study with the P2P Foundation and, and other uh, organizations in, um, it was even before 2016, we had, so we looked at 300, what we call peer production communities, and we found that 75% of them, so that's a pretty high number, were either experimenting or already using contributive accounting. So what that means is if you have a commons community, you know, you have all kinds of people contributing, but only a few are actually able then to make money with it. And so it creates a question of equity and fairness. And so the idea then is that you create this, this second form of accounting internally. And so the money comes in from the outside. You have a membrane in between. And inside, it's redistributed in a different fashion, right? And for example, if you're interested or you're, you're, our, our listeners are interested, they can look at the uh, open value system of Sensorica in Montreal, which has been working for years on a quite sophisticated system of contributive accounting. So it's basically declaring that your community, you know, can choose what is valuable for your community. And then, especially now that you have these intelligent, you know, crypto monies, you can actually design a currency that reflects the value of your community. And so you have, on the one hand, the cold currency, if you like, the extractive currency, and you can also have your warm currency that represents this kind of broader recognition of collective value. Yep, very good point. And, you know, I like to point out to people, at least in the United States, where I'm very familiar with the internals of corporate law, you can actually do those kinds of things within an ordinary corporation or LLC. That's the one of the interesting and odd things about English and American style law is that you can put well, almost whatever you want in the bylaws of a corporation as radical and cooperative and a communitarian and peer-to-peer -peer as you want. And it's, it's just really, frankly, a matter of imagination. And you don't have to go through the B Corp process. So that has some benefits, has no real legal significance. It basically takes the fact that we can do this within the idea of law as code and create what we want. And I'll give you a, an interesting example of something that we did that actually touches back on something Michelle spoke about earlier. A group of us started a makerspace in the small city that I live about an hour outside of. And we ran it nominally as a not-for-profit for about two years, but with the intent that it would never be profitable and we would plow the profits back into the organization. But eventually got big enough that we said, well, let's make it clear that this will be a not-for-profit forever. So we 
we decided to go through the paperwork of converting it to a, a United States style, not for profit, and get the tax authorities, the IRS 401c3 designation, so we could receive tax deductible gifts, etc. And then we said, how do we want it governed? And we jammed on it for a while. And one of the people who jammed on it's extremely creative young woman who's an anarchist, and another one who was a medievalist, and I who had some sympathy for both of those, but also knew a lot about you know how to craft corporate organizational forms. And so we created what we call the Council of Guilds means of governance. And it's legal. It's in our bylaws. It was approved by the state of Virginia, and it was approved by the U.S. IRS as a legal means to govern an entity. And essentially, each of the skill areas in our makerspace, we have a very extensive wood shop. We have a pottery shop. We have laser cutters. We have a bunch of 3D printers. We have digital arts center. Each of those areas can organize itself as a guild. And they basically put one person on the council of guilds, which from a legal perspective acts very much like a board of directors would in a normal corporation. And there's a whole mechanism for new guilds to be proposed and approved and such. And the guilds are self-managing internally within themselves. People say, how the hell did you do that? And I said, Easy. It's just law as code. So one thing I would encourage people who are thinking about doing these things, at least in the Anglosphere where we have the English common law, is to realize that a lot of these very cool ideas can be done within the old structures if you allow yourself a blank piece of paper to design from. I, I'm amazed, uh, Chip, because I, I didn't know that. And I, I'd like to make a little remark because so, you know, it's, it's a bit of a historical dynamic that uh, I think Douglas Rushkoff also sometimes speaks about this. So basically, you know, once you have kind of class society and, 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 and warfare and everything, what an empire does is it creates peace within and war outside, right? It, it, it conquers and it fights on the outside. But in principle, you know, you have like the Pax Romana inside. So the Middle Ages was a, a period of time in Europe where there was no central authority or very weak central authority. So this was a very distributed system with no clear power. And you had, you know, you had the church and the local lords and, and then these cities came up, right? And so that's a very interesting period uh, because it shows you how a distributed society can work, you know, with competing uh, power centers. And, and so... That's how the free medieval cities were created when, you know, the, the farmers started leaving the countryside, became workers, skilled workers, uh, and, you know, created these solidarity mechanisms within the city. And then also economic ideas that were, you know, described in the 12th and 13th century. But the thing is that because the, you know, the elites were always nostalgic of the Roman Empire. So when in the 16th century, you know, everybody wanted to go back to centralization, right? But now we are exactly again in a period of time where centralization is getting a very bad reputation, where we are kind of deglobalizing. And so looking at the Middle Ages becomes interesting as a historical example of how things can work in a distributed society. So I'm fascinated by the fact that you do that and even call it guilds because I've been talking to some friends about this. And, you know, it's, one of my ideas was we have to look at how guilds worked, not to copy it, you know, point by point, but that does inspire us by, you know, prior experience of people. Yep, that was our thinking. Yeah, I would love to get material on what you're doing there. This is really interesting to me. 
Yeah, we'll do it, and I'll send you the link, and we'll post it on the episode page where we actually, I'll actually send you the actual legal document that we created to instantiate our makerspace as a council of guilds. And it goes into quite a bit of detail. And the thing was, it passed legal muster at both the state and federal level. So it's something people can feel free to take and use. We have decided that as far as we're concerned, that intellectual work we did, which was quite a bit, is in the commons and free to for anyone to take. And, you know, we I don't know if you know this, Michael, but I've been involved from the very beginning with a group called Game B. I was one of the original Game B team. And, you know, we've been thinking about very similar things, you know, very, very similar things. Then, And we do believe that this current crisis is going to open many ears to hear that perhaps, you know, driving for the last penny of economic efficiency by building this world-spanning machine that's optimized for short-term money on money return and nothing else is not such a good idea. And then we're also looking back at some of the older models. Right now, we have some folks looking into the kibbutz movement in Israel, for instance. Another one I've looked into, and in fact, I look at my bookshelf now, I've got five books on the topic, are the Amish here in the United States, the Anabaptist German immigrants who still to this day run an alternative society embedded inside of American society that has their own banking, has their own replacement for insurance by religion. They do not allow insurance, but they've created kind of a community, we'll take care of you rule that allows someone to operate you know, fairly risky enterprises like farms without insurance. And they have a whole lot of things that we can learn from. And we're amazed that these living relics are still functioning and are quite interesting as sources of material to take. Now, I would not want to become Amish. Thank you very much. But some of the ideas, you know, I'll give one example. You'll hear about the Amish, you know, not using electricity or not using this or not using that. And they're not nearly as black and white as you might think. As it turns out, let's call it the broader Amish and Mennonite community because they're closely related, all descended from the German Anabaptists. There's a group that's approximately like a parish in a more traditional Christian religion. It's, you know, 25 to 50 families. That is where the decision is made about what technologies to use and how. Uh, I'll give you an example. One form of old order Mennonites that I know of, they have decided after a couple of years of deliberation that it's okay to have electricity in your barn so that you can run milking machines for your cows and refrigeration for the milk, but it's not okay to have electricity in the house. And again, you know, nuance. While other groups of Mennonites say no electricity, or Amish typically will say no electricity at all, but sometimes they'll allow telephones, right? So I can call the vet if the animals get sick. So they do it by deliberation at a fairly local, a quite local level, you know, 25 to 50 families. And you know, those ideas, you know, might actually be interesting for our Game B movement that we produce, we call proto-Bs, which are small communities, and each one may be quite different. I'd like to give you another framing that I've been uh, thinking about. Um, so there's, and you know, it's kind of related to what you just said. So the so the basic idea, and it's called with a difficult word, wave pulse theory. So these are historians from different schools. So you have biophysical economics so the people who think about the economy in thermodynamic ways you know matter energy flows you have a cliodynamics which is kind of looking at the rhythms in history peter turchin and his school of historians you have world systems theory Wallerstein and, and others Karl polanyi the double movement uh idea so different ideas and and here's the idea so 
uh, human history evolves between two polarities of extraction and regeneration. And typically, a class society which competes with you know other peers, so nation states with nation states, empires against empire, because they're in competition, they will overuse their resources, not as an exceptional thing, but as a regular thing. And that's why, you know, historically, all civilizations that existed have disappeared. And so typically, they do this to the point of collapse. And th that ushers in the pulse for, the, for a period of regeneration. And so my thesis is that in these periods of regeneration, it's the commons that saves the day. So the commons are used as a healing mechanisms for societies and economies which have overused their resources. And the principle of the commons is mutualization, right? So think about this. You have this highly predatory slave-based Roman Empire, which becomes too complex and starts disintegrating. And what happens? Well, what happens is the Catholic monks, you know, mutualize their life. So they have food and shelter and a rich spiritual life in a common setting, freely chosen. They mutualize their knowledge because there wasn't copyright. And, you know, like the Sister Censures, which is one of those congregations that was created by St. Bernard, they were responsible for 90% of the technological innovation in the 11th, 12th centuries. You know, they were the engineers of their time, right? And then relocalization of the economy around the, the feudal domains. So I think you can see what I'm trying to say is that you know, when there is an overreach of a civilization, people go back to the commons because it's the, one of the ways to dramatically lower the human footprint while actually maintaining a good resource level. And, you know, psychologically, let's say we all have a fenced, you know, garden. If I'm unlucky, I'm hungry. You know what I mean? But if we have an agreement that you know, there is some kind of reciprocity mechanisms, then you know that if your garden doesn't function, you, you will still get what you need. So this is what the commons does psychologically, right? It, it mutualizes resources so that there's a kind of insurance that people can use it. And I think, so that brings me back to you, your idea of the Amish. You know, they came from these periods where it was necessary to do that and, you know, they have the really uh, system that's been good enough so that it could persist over these long periods of time. Yeah, it's quite amazing how and how well they do. I mean, we have a number of Mennonites very close to us. In fact, our county is now probably 10% Mennonite and their farms are beautiful. They take care of their animals, they take care of their soil, and they do it generation after generation. And they're able to live within the game A world, as we say in game B. And I know that's a very important theme that we'll get to later as we dig deeper into your book, how peer-to-peer -peer commons and other forms of alternative organization can actually embed itself within the current structure, at least for the time being, until working together, we eventually all eroded away, right? <laughs> Which is really an important point. Let's stop here a little bit and let's dig in a little bit more into the idea of commons. We've touched on it three or four times, but we haven't really fleshed it out a lot. This is very important. In fact, I'm reading in bits and pieces of time between my readings for my podcast, a book called Free, Fair, and Alive by a guy named David Bollier and some other folks that really digs into the concept of the commons. And I've really 
become more interested in it than before. But anyway, so I'll let you talk about your vision of the commons. But one thing that we'll have to put on the table whenever commons comes up, you certainly have to address Garrett Hardin and the idea of the tragedy of the commons and how you know that's not near. Well, anyway, I'll, I'm sure, I'd love to hear your view on that. I have my view. I'll, I'll speak after you're done. Yeah, so the, the ancient Romans already made a difference between what they called res nullius, what belongs to no one, and res communis, what belongs to a, you know, a group of people or a community. And so basically the mistake of Garrett Hardin, which he re- later on recognized, is that what he called the commons were actually not commons, but open access resources. So this is not you know, like a, a mountain flank in, in the Swiss village, which is managed by the community, but an open area that everybody can use. And he's, he's com- he was right that open access resources often lead to this tragedy. But it, it was mistaken to call it the tragedy of the commons because a commons by definition is governed to exactly avoid that, right? So, so he wasn't really talking about commons. He was talking about open fields that, that were from no one. And those are, by definition, not commons, but open access resources. Uh, so as soon as people realize that that if they do this selfish thing, that you know the, the, the resource will be destroyed, they can make agreements amongst each other to preserve that resource, and then it actually becomes a commons. And then they can preserve it over generations. So that's kind of the nuance. Uh, and um, you know, I've I've seen that Garrett Hardin actually said that you know. He apologized for making that mistake because, unfortunately, this mistaken, you know, kind of framing became one of the key ideas of neoliberalism and the idea that the only thing that works is a private market. So they used his ideas to basically, you know, go to war even more against the commons. And that's a very sad thing. And this is still happening in Africa and Asia and Ukraine, you know, where the World Bank and the IMF are pushing this idea everywhere of privatizing, you know, these mutual resources. And, you know, often it doesn't work the way they intend to do. And, and that's, that's a real problem. I agree 100% with what you said. You hit it right on the nose that people whip out Garrett Hardin like a weapon sometimes, right? Even though what he was talking about was not anything like the normal socially managed commons. And of course, we know Eleanor Ostrom actually got a Nobel Prize in part for her analysis of, you know, how commons are and ought to be managed. And so there's a very different regime. They are managed. So they're managed in a way that isn't money on money return capitalism. It's another one of these alternative ways to do things. May, may I mention one difference I have potentially with the book that you just mentioned? And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, these are friends. I work with them. So we're actually part of the same group for a while, which was called the Common Strategies Group. And so with David Bollier and Silke Helfrich, the three of us, we would organize uh, what we call deep dives. And they, these were like, you know, fairly confidential meetings where we would put two groups of people together who didn't know each other. For example, commoners and, and cooperatives or the commons and ethical finance. And so we, we, you know, we did that for a number of years to create bridges between these various communities. But there's one point where I think we differ, and this is the, the notion of you know, the relation between the commons and the market, because I've seen passages where they explicitly say you know, that there can be no relation with the market. I could be mistaken. So I would have to recheck it. 
but okay, whether they say it or not, I, I just want to critique that position. As long as you say that commons are only for volunteers that cannot have any relation with the market, you know, you put yourself in a position where you don't have any resources and you, you are marginal. And what usually happens is that after five or 10 years, the first generation is exhausted. Uh, and if they're not replaced, that's the end of the project. So I'm actually for institutional redesign in which you think about the commons and then you think, okay, how can we create ethical livelihoods so that our commons can persist over time? And I think this is a very important time. So first at a micro level, you know, you have to think about how do we do this for the long term? What kind of, you know, income streams? And to do that in a way that doesn't endanger the commons, right? So I call it reverse co-optation. And I think you mentioned Richard Bartlett, and I was maybe that was before our recording. But so Richard Bartlett, of who is or used to be with Inspiral, which is a coalition of co-ops uh, and social entrepreneurs in New Zealand, you know, they um, did something very interesting, uh, which I call transvestment. So investment is using capital to generate more capital. Transvestment is using capital to create more commons, right? You go, you switch, you transform it from one value system to another. And so they took a million dollars to produce Lumio, which is an open source free software. They guaranteed 5% return for 10 years, but then they did a ritual to give the resource to the commons. So this is very interesting because at the same time, they satisfy the investor but by really, you know, creating a wall between their entity and the investment, so they they were not kind of in a slave-like position to capital, and at the same time they created more common. So this is something I describe in the book: is how do we do what I call reverse co-optation, right? So how do we protect ourselves as commoners? How do we maintain our our ethics and values and create equitable and fair livelihoods? without being overrun by more predatory uh, instincts. And this is a problem that co-ops many times have, right? Co-ops have two big problems. One is called managerialism, which is over time there's an elite that becomes to, that becomes managers and they're, they're not really involved, uh, all the members anymore. But also what's called worker capitalism, which is, yes, you distribute it differently, but you're behaving the same as a, as a competitive firm. And so my, my concern is how do you avoid this? How do you create, you know, commons that are in relation with generative market functions so that both can continue to exist in equilibrium over a longer period of time? So that's what you'll find in my book. It is attempt to, you know, kind of do institutional designs. So the commons institution, the market institution, and the state institution, first at the micro level where you have the productive community, the entrepreneurial coalition and the what I call the four benefit association. You will note that most open source projects have some association with managers, the infrastructure and the collaboration uh, infrastructure, like, you know, Linux Foundation, Drupal Association. And I project it at the level of society. So can we imagine a society where civil society is considered to be productive because every citizen, every inhabitant actually contributes to the common good? And we recognize that. Can we have a market that doesn't destroy communities and natural resources? And can we have an enabling, what I call a partner state, 
which creates the conditions that every citizen can equally participate in this uh, contributory economy. So that's kind of my what I call post-capitalist dream is, is to have healthy markets, healthy civil societies and healthy state forms, which can create, you know, a bit what the Amish do, right? It's create long-term stability within planetary boundaries. And we have examples on a large scale, and I, I recently discovered this, which is the Togukawa period in Japan, which lasted, uh, I think, two to three centuries. I'm not sure about the, the timing, but they had a balanced economy with a stable population that lived within the regional planetary boundaries of Japan. So we know we can do it. And we know that we need the commons to really do this because actually what happened was that the emperor, the shogun, had taken over the land from these you know, rival feudal lords and, and created rules to avoid deforestation. So that's, that's really interesting. You know, these kinds of macro solutions that use the commons uh, as, a, as a tool to, to maintain stable societies. Yeah. And I think what we just talked about here, which, as you say, is in your book, and you give some good examples in chapter two, which we'll get to in a bit, at least two of them, that a key question is not only long term, but also how do you get there? And, you know, I was in my earlier days a startup entrepreneur, that I was an investor in startups, et cetera. And one of the rules I used uh, for my own ventures and investing in others and such is to realize that nobody ever jumps up a cliff, right? It just doesn't happen. You got to find a hill to walk up. And, you know, here we are surrounded on all sides by this amazingly powerful, if stupid and brutal machine, which we call game A, that is driven by money on money return, but also has a lot of freedom in it. And one of the freedoms is to be able to build your own thing inside of it. And in fact, in our game B concept, we're less doctrinaire about commons per se, that we do understand that commons have to be a driving concept at the highest level with respect to the global systems. But we are interested in commons, we're interested in co-ops, we're interested in almost any kind of organizational form that can make people sovereign and be highly coherent and and, and here's the most important thing, be able to outcompete game A entities, at least in some sectors, because you can't jump up a cliff and we can't get to this post-capitalist world immediately. And probably the only roads there immediately would be through violent revolution where we're more likely to end up with feudalism or neo-fascism than we are what you and I want. So we've been thinking about how can we assure that these entities are realistic and, as you say, provide real livings for themselves, some of which may well be engaging with game A at some level, but doing it in a way that you're able to live true to yourself in a game B or commoner way and yet define those, you use the word membranes, and I refine that word a little further and call it semi-permeable membranes. In the biological realm, every cell has a membrane, but the membrane has been designed by evolution very carefully for what it both lets in and what it puts out. And so if we think in terms of semi-permeable membranes being our operating entities at around the Dunbar number, or maybe some collection of cells at the Dunbar number, that they have around them a semi-permeable membrane, which is maybe we make stuff to sell to the game A world, but yet we live like game B. One of the examples I give, just because it's so absurd, seemingly, especially to white people who come from the hippy-dippy kind of point of view, which is, could you want to imagine a game B auto repair business, right? 
what? You know, fixing those pollution belching demons. I go, hey, the world is full of auto repair businesses, and most of them are very, not most of them, but many of them are very unethical, right? They rip people off. They charge them for parts they don't put in. They buy cheap knockoff parts from China and and charge you as if it was the ones from the original car manufacturer. It's a terrible business. Most people have a catalog of abuse they've had at the hands of auto repair. So, you know, imagine a Game B auto repair business where the people live together in a physical community and, and govern themselves through a series of rules and share their economics with another set of algorithms. But much of the energy for the Game B Proto B, which is our lowest level of of organization, is actually funded by our chain of auto repair businesses that we all work in. And how do we outcompete? Well, we outcompete by being ethical, by having worker management of the floor. I happen to have worked in the auto business when I first got out of college, probably why I know about this example. But within an auto repair business, there's horrible tension, rivalry, and fighting between the service writers, or the ones who interface to the customer and typically the ones trying to rip you off and the workers, the mechanics, the people who turn the cranks, who mostly want to do a good job. And then the parts department, who's always trying to pressure the mechanics to buy as many parts as possible or you know, get in, embed as many parts as possible in a repair job, whether it's necessary or not. You wonder why all they do these days is just replace parts because it's the parts department trying to muscle the mechanics to do so. So our view is that, or at least my view, I should say, this is just purely my crazy idea is that if you were to organize using game B principles in this very game A business, you'd outcompete the game A players in your town very quickly. The word would get out. Wow. Auto repair business, totally ethical, probably 10% cheaper. And they don't sell you crap you don't need. And you could use that economic profit from the game A world to basically keep the game B world going until gradually we build our own economy and trade with each other. Well, you know, what What you're just saying is a bit what the cooperative movement learned in the 19th century. You know, first they tried to build productive uh, co-ops, but they they didn't succeed because they couldn't get the capital from banks. And, and, and so so they, they kind of moved to consumer co-ops. And so what they decided, and I forgot the name, the Rochdale pioneers, right? So they, just, they knew that they could deliver food to the workers with 30% less than the private shops. But they also knew that if they did that, they would create so much animosity and they would probably be destroyed. So what they did was give 10% discount instead of 30. Um, And so they had a 20% surplus that they invested to grow the cooperative movement and they were extremely successful. And I don't know if you know this, but there are more people today working in co-ops than working for multinationals. And there's a study in France showing that tech co-ops, you know, have a five times less chance of going bust than, than venture capital tech startups. The problem is that people don't know that, right? They don't know that these things exist. So in terms of strategy, uh, I talk a lot about seed forms, right? The, the idea that when a system is breaking down, and so this is the idea that we're now entering this downward spiral, you know, if you remember what I said in the beginning, this kind of wave pulse between extraction and, gen- and generative periods, what capitalism has achieved to do is to create an extractive period which lasts very, very long and has culminated in a globalized overuse. So that's an unprecedented situation because there's no escape. We've reached this overreach at a global scale. 
And so what happens in these periods is that people look for solutions which obviously will not have the same logic than the system that, that is less and less functioning. And so this is what I call seed form. So, for example, you look at the beginning of capitalism. You know, it took eight centuries to prepare for, for modern capitalist society. But it begins with, uh, and I'm sure you know that story, but I find it interesting, is, you know, the invention of purgatory, right? So you have the Italian cities, and at that time, usury was defined as just asking interest. So if you ask for interest, you go to hell. So then they, they uh, because there was a lot of pressure, you know, in the Italian city-states, they started thinking about purgatory, which is a very convenient solution. So they defined lending interest no longer as a cardinal sin, but as a kind of moderate sin. And then you could buy back your sin by buying indulgences, which a church used to you know, invest in their, in their Gothic cathedrals. And suddenly Christians could lend money. So that's, that's like an invention, you know, a pattern that would eventually enable the capitalists. Then you have double entry book accounting. Then you have the printing press, right? So you could identify a number of things that like existing seed from first and they find each other and they create organizations which use two or three or four or five of these patterns, eventually create a subsystem and eventually that subsystem takes over. So this is the way I think. So we are in the period where we have to create seed forms and look for niches where they're viable. And at the same time, we work at changing the rules of society so that we can do this more and more, right? So what you've done is hacking, you know, the example you gave about uh, the guild system. But you can also change legislation in more radical ways. For example, in Italy, uh, you know, they have the public commons cooperation protocols. So it started in Bologna. Actually, it started with a, a constitutional reform in which they introduced the notion of subsidiarity so that democracy should be done at the lowest uh, reasonable level. And so no, no centralization when it's not necessary. And they use it in Bologna to create a rule that allows citizens to claim something as a commons. So you can say, I want to take care of the riverbeds. I want to re rejuvenate this old factory, which is abandoned. I want to re you know, redynamize the, the park. And so this was so successful, Jim, that it went to 250 Italian cities and that now 1 million people are doing urban commons projects in Italian cities. So this is how you get from a niche to a new norm. Does that make sense? I like it a lot. Yeah. A couple of interesting stories here. I did not know the story that purgatory was a loophole for letting money at interest. I love that, actually. Yeah, there's there's a book by Jacques Le Goff, if you're interested, that he has a whole book about that, and I, I, I read it some years ago. Quite interesting. But, you know, actually more relevant today is this idea of, you know, a seed starting in one place of having the ability to find commons in Bologna and then having that spread across all of Italy. That's the kind of fan out I think we're both hoping that our work will lead to over time. Because you have to have existence proofs. I keep coming back to this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and I call this protocol cooperatives. Um, and I let you speak, but I, I want to explain what that means. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, just a very short thing is that one of my frustrations in some of these social change groups is a whole lot of people want to spend a whole lot of time talking about theory, which is good. I, mean, I like theory. I can go deep on theory when I need to. But 
to get beyond the you know one percent elite thinkers of the world, you got to have existence proofs. They're not going to take anybody's word that some high concept way to redo the world is going to make life better for them and their families. You got to see it work. So I'm always looking for tangible, homey, down-to-earth, and preferably rivalrous examples of things that we can actually show that our theories work. And I'm an empiricist. If our theories turn out not to work, then there's something wrong with our theories. I'm completely on your side on that. And actually, that's what the P2P Foundation does. So we have 20,000 articles and concepts and examples. of, And the rule to be in our wiki is that you have to exist. So the concepts I have are concepts that are actually used by communities that exist. And the projects that I use are not plans, but they are actually communities and projects that already exist. You know, sometimes they exist in experimental form, but they exist. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and we have to prototype. We have to experiment. Right. And I build my theory based on what I see in that reality. So that's really how I work. So it's, it's very close to what you're saying. Yeah, I love it. And I obviously knew about your work and your foundation, but I hadn't really dug deep into it. And one of the things that I really love about doing my podcast, I do spend about 10 hours per episode digging into people's materials. The amount of stuff I found on your wiki in particular was, holy moly, I could spend a month digging into that. The other resource of yours I'd call out to people, which I now follow, is you have a daily blog post as well, which is well worth following. And I had it written down here. Where the hell is it? It's blog.p2pfoundation.net. And then we have commonstransition.org. Yep. So there's, there's a huge amount of very useful material, which actually is a perfect pivot to my next topic, which is actually from chapter two in your book sort of two parts to this. First, you talk about value and what is value, exchange value versus use value. I'd like to get you to talk about that a little bit. But then you, you dig into four examples. And I'd be particularly interested, again, my bias towards tangible and how do we apply these concepts to the rivalrous domain, to the examples of WikiHouse and FarmHack. Okay. Yes. So I do want to say a bit about value because I I don't think I talked about this and this is so important. So, you know, somewhere I think in the 17th century, we decided that value could only be created in the market. So you, you need, you know, kind of a, a commodity that you can sell in the market and that creates value. So to make it simple, you have three nurses. One is a volunteer for Mother Teresa's congregation. And she she's not counted anywhere in the GDP. She doesn't get a salary. She doesn't exist. Then you have a nurse that works for a public hospital. And she's counted as a cost. So when there's an economic crisis, we spend too much, the public hospital will be closed, and she loses her job. And then there's a third nurse, and she works for a private hospital. And she's you know a positive force in our society because she creates surplus value for her shareholders. So this is what a value regime does. You have three people doing the same job and only one is recognized as being a value creator, right? And this is a big problem because what it means is that we can only fund regenerative activity in our society either to taxation or philanthropy. So first we have to extract, accumulate profit and, and, and capital to our extraction and then eventually you know, we can invest uh, through taxation or philanthropy in things that are good, you know, more generative uh, for the world. And this is 
This means that as long as we are in this value regime, we cannot structurally solve our problems. And so any real change in civilizational paradigm is also a change in value regime, right? Just to give another example, you have the Romans, they have slaves, work is for the slaves, work is not good. A free person is a person that doesn't work so that he can, you know, dedicate his time to philosophy and stuff. That's the ideal of the ancient Greeks and the Romans. Then the Christians come in and what they say is, no, 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 ora et labora, we have to pray and work. And work becomes uh, seen as a way to bring in, you know, the divine order in the in the on the on the planet Earth. So you see that the medieval system is actually a value revolution compared to the Roman system, right? So you have this, and so what I'm suggesting to you, Jim, is that we're going to move from a commodity-based value system to a contribution-based value system. Um, and so that's absolutely crucial. So we we have to find mechanisms that allow us to do that. And I, I want to give you an example, and this is from the blockchain world, right? So maybe two examples to make it a bit real. One is the idea of a, a shared public ledger to directly finance generative work. So the example is Terre des Liens. It's a community land trust in France with $70 million capital. They've proven already in 2016 that they saved the French state 300 million per euro per year in depollution costs so that the state doesn't have to depollute because they don't pollute the water. And the problem so today is we don't have any mechanism to do this. But imagine we have a, a public ledger, right, uh, like the, the blockchain people are doing. And so any person could say, here is the proof of my decarbonization effort, right? So you get verified and confirmed, you get tokenized, and then either the state decides as a priority or you go to the institutions and companies that profit from your positive externalities, as they call it. And that way you have a direct financing of generative work. So this is called uh, circular finance, like the circular economy needs circular finance. And why is this interesting? Because what you can do is you can build in limits like planetary boundary limits, uh, and this is uh, something called global thresholds and allocations. The group is called Reporting 3.0. So you have this council that keeps track of all the resources in the world uh, and how much we can use without destroying the planet. Because you have all the freedoms, but not the freedom to destroy the planet. And we can integrate this in, in our accounting system so that people know the choices that they have. But within that, you are completely free you know, to solve your issues as you see fit, as long as you don't destroy, go over the planetary boundaries. Okay, so I just wanted to say this because this is very important as the underlying, you know, system that that, that I describe in the book. Uh, so the two examples you were asking were FarmHack. FarmHack at WikiHouse. Yes, so instead of FarmHack, uh, which I don't know very well because that, that case that was written by my co-author, there is a similar group in France. It's called Atelier Paysan. So what they do is they come together every two weeks, you know, a regional workshop, and they make a machine together, right? So because their idea is that agribusiness firms do not make the machines that these more smaller family-oriented uh, farmers need. So they will do it themselves. And so every two weeks they make a machine that somebody needs in their network, and they will put the design in a global commons. 
Uh, it's in French, so that's a limitation. But, you know, they had like 2,000 designs already like three, four years ago. And, you know, they have hundreds of members. And they are active in the whole country of France. So this is a very interesting project that I know a bit better. And I think Farmhack is quite similar. So these are just people, young farmers mostly, that basically create shared designs of things they need in their work. And, you know, they hack farm machinery. Because I'm sure you know this, right? If you buy a John Deere tractor, it's illegal to repair it because you sign a contract which includes the software on the machine and it's private software and you're not allowed to change it. You know, so this creates kind of a new feudalism. That's what these groups kind of, you know, act against. So WikiHouse, I know a bit better because I've visited them in New Zealand and basically they want to make a zero carbon positive, I think it's called, a house. Uh, and again, the idea is to work together in community and to share the design globally so that if they're successful, other people can simply then, you know, copy the the design and do it in another locality and maybe adapt it. And so I come back to what I wanted to say before you, you told your story. This is what I call a protocol cooperative. So what is a protocol cooperative? You know, it's it's creating joint patterns so that the whole ecosystem can organize themselves around these joint patterns. If you remember, Occupy was like that, right? Uh, now, Occupy has had, had, you know, ultimately failed and had weaknesses, but it did succeed in very rapidly mobilizing a huge number of people, like 15M in, in, in Spain was like 1 million people on the streets because they had a common protocol. Like, if you do this and this and this, you can call yourself Occupy. And WikiHouse is the same. If you do this and this and this, you can call yourself WikiHouse, and then you can also participate in the system. And so we go from economies of scale, which is what we do now, which is by producing more of a single unit, you can make it cheaper. But it also means you're using more energy and resources in order to obtain that competitivity. And you go to another model, which is called economies of scope, which is doing more with less. So basically, on the information level, what happens is in a system like that, any innovation anywhere in the world can be copied very rapidly by anybody else in the ecosystem. Uh, so you can imagine ultimately the, uh, what's it called, Open Motors does that, that you have, you know, designs for cars. And if a local city decides we're going to make our own buses, they don't necessarily have to buy it from a big private company. They can say, we can make our local biodegradable, you know, renewable buses based on modular repairable systems. We can make them right here. And this is what I call cosmo-local production, where everything that is light is global and shared and everything that is heavy is local. I like that a lot. In fact, I'm going to point this one out, the WikiHouse one, to our Game B community for people to dig into because there are groups getting ready to actually create communities, physical ones. And one of the things that people are talking about is what are economic and ethical ways to build good housing. And it looks like this WikiHouse is quite an interesting concept. Yes, I, I have a whole category of housing, you know, category housing in my wiki. So you'll see this, there's a lot more and so that's that's really what I want to push is that people have to know these need seed forms so they can learn from each other. And we have a big problem, which is fragmentation, which is that, you know, I went to Tuscany 
and there were 13 pieces of software to order organic food from CSAs, you know, community supported agriculture. That's insane. You know, we have to mutualize our knowledge. And in open source, you can still adapt it to your local situation, but you have this core commonality so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel because that's a problem when we compete with capitalism, right? If they can make an Uber, which is, you know, globally scaled based on one pattern, and you are, you know, redesigning, you know, 10,000 different places, something different, you how, go, how are you going to compete? Very good point. Though, of course, uh, in a weird way, Uber used your strategy. They did that which is light and did it globally, the software, and that which is heavy, exactly. the car, and made their drivers pay for the cars. So they didn't have any capital costs. Yeah, brilliant. And, yeah. But predatory. But predatory. You know, unfortunately, anything good can be used for bad, which actually gives us a perfect transition to the, the next topic. And I guess it'll be probably the last topic because we're kind of getting short on time. Got a lot of other interesting things to talk about in my notes. Maybe you'd be interested in coming back for a part two. I do this fairly often. Yeah, I, I'd like to. I'd like to because, yeah, you, you're right. There's a lot to discuss. And I think also for people, you know, it can be too long because there's a lot to to digest, actually. Okay, well, let's go on one on the last topic that we have time for, and then we'll have you back for part two to get into a whole bunch of other things. And that is your that you talk about quite a bit in chapter three of the peer-to-peer book, which is how our many-to-many communications and other things that we are creating in this internet world of ours provide us what you call new socio-technological frameworks. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Then I'll probably follow up on that because that's the area I did most of my business career in. Right. Well, so last year I produced also another report I want to briefly mention. It's called P2P Accounting for Planetary Survival. And so I propose a kind of unified global infrastructure to produce for human needs within planetary boundaries. And I have one slide that maybe we can talk about it next time. I just want to mention it because people believe technology is neutral, that, you know, you can make invent something and then depends how you use it. And I'm thinking this is not exactly true because the way you design something is already value driven. And you can see that with the internet, right? It starts in the army where the non-commissioned officers are telling their officers, we need a distributed system because when, you know, when the, when the headquarters will be bombed in the war, then we can't do anything anymore. Uh, so DARPA develops the, this idea and then scientists start cheating and, you know, introducing the internet uh, in their offices. You know, there's a story about actually making a cable, uh, you know, without permission. So the scientists take it over. And then the students and the researchers in the academia, right? And then you have the browser and then the people come in. And once the people are there, the businesses then come in and they change the internet into, again, a client server logic. They, they go away from the peer-to-peer because they can't control it. And then the third wave is government see that happening and say, oh, my God, we need to control this. And they, you know, then surveillance is introduced. So I just want to say that design... Technology is not neutral. It's uh, based on values and on, on values and design decisions. And so you apply that to peer-to-peer. And what I describe in Chapter 3 is that there are now four competing models because peer-to-peer is here to stay. It's kind of the basic paradigm. But then how you implement it is based on values, interests, etc. So you have 
a quadrant with centralized and global versus local and distributed and you have another line the horizontal line between for profit and for benefit so centralized for profit peer-to-peer -peer. what does that mean well that's facebook and uber and google so they allow us to do peer-to-peer -peer on their platforms but everything in the background is privatized and so our data becomes a new oil and they sell our attention so i call this net archical capitalism because it's the hierarchy of the network but you know they still they still enable a lot of peer-to-peer -peer, you know even though we might criticize them and i do but you know for example facebook in austin in belgium because i'm originally from there you know there's a a community fishing project where the consumers order the fish directly from the fishermen and then pick them up when they come from back from the sea yeah that's a very positive community support fisheries that is actually managed to through facebook right then the second uh distributed for profit is basically what i call the blockchain world so they use things like proof of work and what's the other name proof of stake they're all oligarchic protocols i'm sorry these are protocols which give more to the people who already have more so you look at the distribution of bitcoin it's more unequal than sovereign money right um, on the other hand these people are doing you know great innovations they're creating open collaborative systems they reserve 40 percent of the tokens for the workers they, you know there's some really interesting interesting stuff happening there and now we move into post blockchain ledgers so that's i think very interesting then on the on the other side of this gradient you have two other models one is, is what i call urban commons so local projects small open local and connected slock uh and there's you know this is what i think i told you that for example in ghent in belgium we went from 50 urban commons to 500 in 10 years so this is also happening and then the global commons idea is the last one uh, for example, I think that cities should create leagues like in the Middle Ages and create protocol co-ops for every provisioning system that needs to be mutualized in the city. So shared habitat, shared mobility, shared food. Uh, and it's absolutely horrendous that, you know, that this should happen independently in every city when they could actually create a core of patterns that could be used by all the participants so this is a way to actually achieve a form of translocal transnational governance where the city becomes the the tool of global governance right in alliance with ethical fines and co-ops and whatever and in alliance with these communities that produce and the code and use the capabilities of these infrastructures so i hope that's a bit clear so what i'm saying is they are developing all four at the same time and competing with each other and right now, the, of course, the netarchical side is winning and dominant, but they are actually very predatory systems. So I don't think they're they're sustainable in the long term, right? Airbnb destroys the inner city; it chases people away. Uh, Uber produces more pollution rather than less. So there are fundamental issues with these models, which are fundamentally predatory, and they don't pay taxes. And they don't invest in infrastructure. They use, you know, infrastructure that is paid for by their own workers. So these are very problematic models. Absolutely, it is interesting that there are a few upstarts against Uber. I know in Austin, Texas, there's a local 
I think it's a driver-owned co-op that has almost 50% of the market. But, you know, the talk of all these CSA software platforms, there somehow need to be a global level of standardization templates or seeds, as you call them, or we call them in the Game B world, exit a box, essentially a turnkey. How can anyone anywhere set up a Uber co-op, essentially? And that seems to be how, at least one way that we can nip away at these kind of over-concentrated network predators. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So we have to start with seeds, you know, then become niches, and then at some moment the niche has to become the norm. And we know this can happen because uh, you think about Germany and renewable energy, right? So you have this one village co-op or maybe 20 years ago, and they have to fight for five years to have the legal right to form a renewable energy co-op. So once it's accepted by the legal system, it starts proliferating, but it never goes more than 2-3% of energy production. But then you have Fukushima, and the Greens are in the government, and they made a deal with Merkel. And then they introduce a feed-in tariff, and within five to seven years, 60% of the renewable energy market is you know, done by these uh, village co-ops. So that's in that niche, they have won. You know what I mean? It's of course it's not enough, but if you think at the emergence of capitalism, you know, it 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 took a very long time for them to become the norm. Now we don't have eight centuries, that's for sure. So we're going to have to be, you know, work in accelerated ways. But also the, um, I, I don't find a reference to this, but somebody told me this, that we are learning eight times faster than like 30 years ago. Right? So the, the, the fact that we have the internet and this collective intelligence means that innovations are now moving so rapidly. Think about permaculture that went from nothing to now with thousands and thousands upon thousands of, of projects. Uh, also, of course, in a bad way, I read another article about bombs that you can make, you know, side on the sideways, like in Afghanistan. It took them six months to make, to learn about this, and now it's like two weeks. So this is at the same time a hope, because even though we can do bad things with it, it means that because we're going to accelerate the decline, we also have to learn much more rapidly what the alternatives are. So this is going to be in some way a, uh, a race against time. And can I tell you one more thing, uh, Jim, before we end this? So Peter Pogani has a book called Rethinking in the World, and I think it is very important. So he says, okay, society is a complex adaptive system. So it doesn't change because good people decide to do things differently. It changes because a system breaks down, creates a chaotic transition with a bifurcation. So global system zero for him is a merchant capitalist system before 1789, it's interrupted by the chaotic transition of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. 1815 creates Global System 1, which is industrial capitalism, but it's a full domination of capital over labor. That is interrupted by World War I and World War II, which created Global System 2, the welfare state model, which broke down in 2008. So we are now in the chaotic transition. And you take then Peter Turchin, who wrote an article, you know, following his rhythms that I explained in the beginning, he predicted that we would have a cascade in the 20s. And it's actually happening with COVID, right? So his idea is that we now have 10 years of downward spiraling, 
with enormous amount of social strife. And, you know, it starts in the U.S. with, with the George Floyd mobilizations. It says usually after 10 years, elites get tired and start, you know, being more willing to introduce reforms. I think that's an interesting way to know where we are. You know what I mean? It really is. It really is a roadmap for where we are and then what you talked about earlier, but within the constraint of the fact that this roadmap has to be accelerated. We don't have a century to make each transition. Exactly, exactly. And I noticed that you actually have a collaborator that we share, which is Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's also a key contributor into the Game B work. Well, he's, he's, not in, no, he's not in the P2P Foundation. We, you know, we communicate occasionally, so I, I wouldn't call him a collaborator, but I, I, you know, I do follow his work and I, you know, I, I, I watch the uh, Rebel Wisdom uh, tapes because you know, his capacity to think about complexity is, is uh, very deep and I, I don't have that. But I think, I don't know if he's done this, but you know, what I'm proposing is also to have a sense of the pulse of time, right? Not just to know where we are, but when we are. And I don't, and I don't do this to tell people, you know, this is a deterministic future; it's going to come automatically. But I think it, it can help to position yourself and okay, now we we we're going for a difficult time, so let's prepare for what comes next, right? Now is the time for the seed forms. Indeed. Well, on that, I think we will wrap it up. This has been extraordinarily interesting. I knew it would be after having done my research. And we've left a lot on the table, particularly talking about the transition strategies and how B2B and the commons need to you know, couple with governance, law, intelligence, infrastructure, and indeed values and coherence. And we'll do a part two and get into those. So I'd like to really thank you, Michelle, for an incredibly deep and interesting episode. Thank you so much. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.